Well, good morning. It is good to see you. I'd like to welcome you. I know we have several of you that are guests that are not always with us uh, this week. And so it's just really good to have you with us. And we just pray that this service today is a blessing to your soul. Uh, we find ourselves with us in the third week of Advent. Uh, we've been looking at Advent. Advent is just the Latin word for arrival. Uh, just talking about Jesus' arrival at Christmas. We're looking back on his first arrival. We're looking forward to his second coming. And so we are in week three of our series, A Thrill of Hope, which is a line from the song, O Holy Night. And it's basically just this idea of hope. And, and I've said the last two weeks, hope is a, is a strong emotion for a lot of us, but for, for kind of a, our cultural understanding of hope is more like wishful thinking. And what the Bible says about hope is more of an assurance of a future reality. It's an idea that, that there is a, a promise from God, that there is a reality that is coming, that we put our hope in that God is going to be faithful to his promises, and, and that that grounds us in times of difficulty, that, that tethers us to, to foundation when, when it feels like everything else below us wants to give way. And so we're looking at a thrill of hope in the first week, and we're doing most of it, except for next week we'll be in Isaiah 9. But the, the first three weeks, counting today, we've been in Matthew. And we're looking at this idea, first week one, we looked at the idea of hope for redemption, that, that Jesus was the redemption of the story of Israel, that he was coming to redeem, which means to purchase back or to apply value to something. And, and I said that Jesus' coming brings hope for redemption, that even in the mess of our lives, even in the sin, even in the, the rebellious parts of our heart, that he can redeem those, that we can surrender our story to Jesus by faith, and that what he will do is take that story and he'll actually work something beautiful out of what we've broken. And there's hope for that, but not just that. Last week we said there's hope because he has his presence. Matthew says that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14, that the virgin shall conceive. And bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That, that God reinitiates his presence with humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, and he arrives at Christmas, even though he's always been, he, he wraps himself in human flesh and he comes into our midst, and that by his presence, we actually can be saved from our sins, is what Matthew says in chapter one. We can be saved from the penalty of our sin, from the power of our sin, and ultimately from the presence of sin forever. And so you can see it's kind of building this story. And, and the gospel writers, interestingly, had a lot of material to work with. I mean, they had the entire Old Testament. They had, that's why you see a lot of quotations from the Old Testament in the gospels. They had, of course, Jesus's life and his three years of ministry to draw on. And John, even in John chapter 21, talks about how there's way more stuff that he did that we just can't put it all into, into our, our gospels, into our books. And so it's interesting because what you can deduce from that is that what these gospel writers chose to include then is on purpose. They're crafting a biography of Jesus. And Matthew's Christmas narrative is unique he builds out his narrative and the arrival of Jesus and the happenings around that in a different way than anyone else. It's, to be honest with you, it's a little less cheery. It's a little less traditional Christmas. Luke, Luke's gospel, right? We have 
the angels and the shepherds and no room in the end. We hear a beautiful song from Mary about how her soul magnifies the Lord. We have Zechariah talking about a prophecy of what Jesus was coming to do. Zechariah was John, not the Southern Baptist's dad, right? He talks about the fact that, that Jesus came to do these uh, miraculous, amazing things. It's, it's shepherds, it's angels, it's just good news of great joy. It's joy to the world, it's glory to God in the highest, it's pre peace on earth. I mean, Luke gives us a Charlie Brown Christmas. Matthew gives us something a little more raw. Matthew goes from Joseph's dream uh, to the birth and into darkness. So as we get here today, I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter two. The words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. But if you do, I would invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter two as we hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 13, now... When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and, and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt <clears throat> and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 19, but when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called 
a Nazarene. Pretty dark. I don't think I've seen this one on Hallmark. Right? I don't think Candace Cameron Bure is playing any of these characters. But this is as much a part of hope at Christmas as any other feel-good text that we typically read. But how is that? So to, to try to see the hope in the darkness, let's engage the dark moments of Matthew's Christmas story by examining four aspects of it. We're going to look at wisdom in the dark, the worry of the dark, the wounds of the dark, and the wonder of Christmas hope in the darkness. The wisdom in the dark, the worry of the dark, the wounds, and the wonder of Christmas hope. So to look at the wisdom in the dark, it's interesting that, that Matthew deals very little with the actual birth. I mean, we get a lot in Luke. We get like one verse in Matthew. It's pretty minimal. No shepherds, no fields, no, no mention of a manger. Matthew just jumps straight from, they, she, he was born, they named him Jesus, and he goes straight into the wise men. And it's interesting because the word translated here, wise men, is a Greek word, magoi, which basically is the plural of magas. And all that really means, I'm not trying to be like, ooh, flexing, like you can look that up on the app. But uh, all that really means is that at, by the time this came, you can see the word looks a lot like magic. And by the time the New Testament came around, this time in history, that word typically actually referred to a wide range of different people whose practices pretty much included astrology, to dream interpretation, to study of sacred writings, to the pursuit of wisdom and the pursuit of magic. Eugene Peterson in the message, he refers to this group of people as scholars. And you see with their gifts, they are wealthy. I mean, they are elite. Now, they may not have been kings. Sorry to wreck your carol singing. I don't know that they were three kings of Orionar, but they were scholarly elites that were coming. And we don't know much about them other than the fact that they saw this star and the fact that they see the star and they're astrologers and they study sacred writings. They kind of put things together and they were intrigued. And so they set out. But what's interesting is Matthew says they were more than intrigued. What does he say in verse 2? They come into Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They were coming to worship. But it's interesting that their worldly wisdom, that their ability to take the things that they study and know and, and put them together, their, their astrological prowess, it only got them to Jerusalem. It's as far as it got them. They inherently saw that this king was worthy of worship. However, they still had to ask the question, where is he? Where is this king? And what's interesting is that while Matthew, I think we get lost on this, while Matthew is completely shocking his predominantly Jewish audience because he's telling them that this narrative that the original seekers to worship Jesus were magicians from the east. Well, we see that he's, she's showing us that they still needed something more than their wisdom and their intellect to worship. You see, the wisdom of this world at best still leaves you in the dark. It still leaves you in the dark. 
to worship Jesus for who he is, you need more than realization that something out there is worthy of worship. You need divine revelation. The wise men realized that something magnificent had happened. As they put the star and the, and the sacred writings together and they were intrigued and they wanted to come worship, they, they knew something magnificent had happened, yet it only got them so far. But notice, who is it that sends them in the right direction in the story? They come to Jerusalem asking about the baby. The word gets to Herod. And here's what Herod does, verse 4, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, who the chief priests and the scribes, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He didn't know. So they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They, they knew it. Oh yeah, it's, it's Bethlehem. The, the Jewish chief priests and scribes were sought for clarity, and of course they were. That makes sense. I mean, they spend their lives as the religious leaders, the chief priests, and as those who are studying these ancient scriptures of Israel. They are worshiping Yahweh. And oddly, the way Matthew tells the story, it is though the chief priests and the scribes, they give Herod his answer on where the Messiah was to born, but they don't seem moved to go. And of all people, shouldn't the chief priests and the scribes been ready for this day? Shouldn't they have wanted to see this fruition of prophecy? That wouldn't make sense. And so Matthew's interestingly showing us that the wise men from the east came to worship Messiah, the chief priests and the scribes, the wise men of Israel, seem to quite indifferently point the wise men in the right direction and just get back to work. And I think one thing Matthew is showing us in the text here is that regardless of what wisdom you or I have gained in our dark world, whatever realizations you have had about life, or whatever reality you think you believe about the existence of God, you still need divine revelation to move from realization of something worth worshiping to the revelation of who is worthy of that worship and where to find him. So the wise men set out. They get the news, they go to Bethlehem, they find this Messiah that they may worship him. And the star that by the, the text, this way it's written, it seems to have maybe disappeared. It reappears and then they are overjoyed. It says they rejoice exceedingly at it there in verse 10. And so they follow the star all the way to the house, not a manger, sorry to burst your nativity scene there. They follow him all the way to a house in Bethlehem. And there they find Jesus and Mary. And these wise men, they, they worship as they bow down to King Jesus and they offer very expensive gifts, which is what would be fitting when you're visiting a king. And this is what we see. And what I want us to distill out of these first 12 verses is this. I think it's an amazing picture of two responses to realization and wisdom in the dark. One response to the realization that that there is a God, that there's something bigger than me, is curiosity. And that with divine revelation, it ends in worship. But the other response is that of the chief priests and the scribes, which is at this point at least, indifference. Both wisdoms are left wanting and in need of revelation. And the same cycle has played itself out across humanity since Matthew 
too. People are made to worship. Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is set in the heart of mankind. We, we know that there's something bigger. We know that we are not meant to die, that, that there's something wrong and broken and dark in our world. We inherently realize there might be a higher power, a sovereign God, yet apart from revelation through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't know who to worship or how to find him. And so we often just allow the wisdom of the dark to keep us in the dark. <clears throat> we need to see Jesus and we need our eyes open to transform from indifference towards the reality of God into worship of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And like the wise men, moving from realization to revelation, it takes a little bit of a pursuit on our end, but what you find is as you're seeking God and you find him, you, feel, you realize he's been seeking you all along. Through the star, through the steadies that they had gone into, he was drawing them to himself in the dark. And if you're in this room today or you're watching online right now, he is drawing you. He's drawing you. Jesus is drawing you to himself what will your response be? Worship or whatever. But we see a third response in our text and it doesn't stem from insufficient wisdom. The other response is worry. Notice King Herod at the news of Jesus' birth, verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Verse seven, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Yeah, right. Verse 13, now when they, the, the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The news of Messiah's arrival created worry. Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled, is what the, the translation I used said. But you can tell, like just from Herod's, from the story and like Herod's plan to destroy the child, he wasn't merely troubled, he was afraid. And what's interesting is that the Greek word here that's translated troubled in other places in Matthew is translated troubled or terrified. The same word that says Herod was troubled is what's used about the disciples when they see Jesus walking on water and they are terrified. And as we discussed last week, that makes sense in a way because Jesus' arrival is disorienting and it's disruptive. He his life came and reoriented and anchored the lives around him and anchored literally history as the way that we even date our calendars. Jesus came and was disruptive and disorienting and you could understand why somebody might be a little terrified. And you might be asking yourself, okay, terrified for a minute, but why wouldn't Herod and the chief priest, why wouldn't they eventually kind of get over that and go worship? What, what, what would cause them to kind of pull back? Well, because Herod was king and he wasn't about to give up that title. Now, Rome may have been in charge, and Herod, but Herod enjoyed, you know, a little bit of comfortable life. He's wealthy. He was able to build a lot of things he wanted to do. He had some influence where he was. And now news of a new king comes, 
And his response was worry, which turned into plotting evil and wickedness. And as we've spent a lot of time this year, if you've been at Journey, we've spent a lot of time in the Gospel of Matthew this year. And we've seen that Jesus was not just a threat to the kings, he was a threat to the establishment, the religious establishment. He came to launch the kingdom of heaven. He came to to be king of God's world and to establish a counter kingdom. And the dark was never going to go quietly in that. As you fast forward to the crucifixion on Good Friday, darkness was committed to snuff out the king of kings, God's son, King Jesus, and the kingdom that he came to usher in. And Jesus was and is a king with a kingdom. And Mark Sayers, who's a cultural commentator and a pastor, makes the comment that there's a lot of things about the kingdom of God that our culture likes. We just like the kingdom without the king. Herod saw the king as a threat. And the religious leaders went from indifferent to seeing Jesus as a threat too. And while many of us in this room may not respond to Jesus the way Herod did, I think if we're honest, the sense of worry and grasping for control in our life probably rings a little true, maybe a little more true than we want to admit. In our society in 2022, I've already said, we we love aspects of the kingdom of God, grace, forgiveness, love. We're just not crazy about having to have it come to us through a king. Because we want all that blessing while maintaining to be the little kings and queens of our world and our lives. And Jesus' arrival says, no, 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 a new king has stepped into this dark world and he's coming to establish and reign as the rightful Lord of lords and king of kings. And if that happens, that's disruptive to our lives and our little kingdoms. Herod's, ours, everyone's. And so again, I just ask, what will your response be in this dark world to the king of kings? Will we worry about the arrival of the new kingdom? Will we be indifferent to King Jesus? Or will we worship King Jesus? There's no other responses. There's no, I know it's funny, but there's no six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus that we can just kind of pick and pray to because he was not a threat. I don't know if Will Ferrell was right, but six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus was a threat. Worship, worry, indifference. What will be our response? And while those are the only responses we really have to choose from, making that response is complicated a little bit because then the reality is it's hard for us to see Jesus clearly sometimes because Matthew's gospel says we get wounded a lot in this dark. The darkness of our world comes with wounds and we see it in the text. Look at verse 13 through 18. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This world will win you, man. And you know it, and I know it. That's not news to you if you've lived very long at all. And one of the ways that we're wounded in this world is we're wounded by others. If you just look at the text that we read, one of the wounds that we see here is the wounds of displacement. Mary and Joseph abruptly displaced. This couldn't have been easy. I mean, they're in Bethlehem. They've got a house that they're in. And abruptly, they have to leave their home. They have to travel to Egypt with a newborn or probably at this point, maybe 18-month-old toddler and travel to Egypt to survive the danger of Herod. This means leaving family, leaving familiarity. Now, most of the scholars would say that there were probably a million Jews in Egypt. Um, so it's not like there, were, there was no one that was like them there, but they were leaving everything that they had known. They were refugees fleeing for their lives. And I know it's not just them, we see that. I know many of you in this room have felt the wounds of displacement. Having a relationship abruptly absent. Having to reorient your lives because of a decision made by somebody else. I know just from my own experience and from others' experience, like you think about how, how displacing divorce is. Think about, well, Christmas, man, it used to be like this. We used to have this tradition and now we gotta, you know, now we gotta do that on Thursday or it's hard. And sometimes those things happen in your life and you didn't even ask for it. But someone else makes the decision and it displaces you, it disorients all that you know. There's emotional and relational wounds when you're displaced from what's always been the case in your life. But consider too the wounds of wickedness and injustice that accompanied Herod's murdering rampage in an attempt to rid the world of Messiah. As a father, I can only imagine the depth of pain as the mercenaries came through that town. It's not hard to see how one might refuse to be comforted like Rachel. When you suffer the wounds of injustice like this evil that came out of the worry of Herod. The reality is we live in a wounded world from disparaging comments from a parent or a peer or a friend or a child to devastating news at work. From divorce to destructive storms, earthquakes, famines in our world, from droughts to just drenching flooding from displacement to death, we live in a wounded, dark world. And those wounds oftentimes are from others. Sometimes we wound others. And sometimes 
We are the wounded, but sometimes we're the ones who wound. We hurt others with our words. We end a relationship. We have to let someone go at work. Maybe we even physically harm someone else. Sometimes we wound. Sometimes we're wounded. And the reality and the truth of the matter is, is that all of us are probably both wounders and wounded. And the nature of this fallen world is that we are all wounded and we just get by the best that we can, but the wounds take their toll. And Christmas is a time where wounds seem to be felt more than other times of the year, if we're being honest. We don't like that. We, we try to put on a happy face. We try to say joy to the world. But in our gut, it hurts. Last year, like this week last year, my sophomore, uh, my roommate, my sophomore year of college took his own life. Wounded. He was wounded, his wife is wounded, his daughter. It can be overwhelming this time of year. And for all the good news of great tidings, of great joy that we're told at Christmas, and those are true, but the wounds of the dark can be so overwhelming. And so we, we try to hide it. We, we don't want to be a Debbie Downer or Donald Downer, I don't know, Dennis Downer. We, we don't want to do that to our family or our friends. So we, we just try to masquerade what's really going on, thinking that maybe if I just put on a happy face, there'll be a little more joy in my life. But I think it's interesting that Matthew includes this aspect, the only one that does. He includes this aspect of the Christmas story because I think he's actually trying to show us how to have hope in the darkness. You see, Matthew wants to give us wonder. How? That this world, wounded as it is, is the world in which he sent his son. Now keep in mind that the gospel of Matthew, a lot of times back then there weren't verse numbers. Sorry if that just blew your mind. There weren't verse numbers when he sent this gospel to the churches. So they would have read this and they wouldn't have been like, oh, that's in chapter one. Put a pin in that. We'll come back next week. They're reading through that. And so you think about what they're reading in Matthew 2 and how closely connected that is to Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us at the end of chapter one. And Matthew is telling you, yeah, this is the world that we have and God said, I'm going to be with you in the dark. This is the world that Jesus entered. God with us in a world that he made at shalom, at peace, only to be ravaged by the wickedness of his wayward creation. And instead of writing us off, he wrapped himself in flesh and entered in. He may have been spared murder as a two-year-old, but don't look at that and go, oh, that's just, that's just privilege. No, because God had a plan from birth to death that he would live the life that we were intended to live but could never do it. He was to bring the kingdom of God to earth. 
I think for us, because of the time since Christmas, we can become immune to the Christmas story and forget Matthew's dark side of Christmas. And we need to be captivated anew by the depth of God's love for his people, that he didn't solve the problem of darkness from afar, but he entered into the darkness to fix it from within. And Eugene Peterson, he says this, he says, Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. And I would say, yes, it does. But what I, what I want you to see is that I think part of what excites the wonder is the fact that it excited evil and he came anyway. He stepped out of the darkness or stepped into the darkness to be God with you and with me in the midst of my worry in the midst of my insufficient wisdom in the midst of my wounds and that means no matter how dark it gets in your life God meets you in the dark with the presence in the person of Jesus Christ the Savior who has come to find you and give you hope and when you can actually see this and believe it, in the midst of a world of darkness, there's something in it that just kind of excites wonder, like, wow, hope. And finally, looking at Matthew 1 and 2, the whole thing, just the whole text of the first two chapters, I think it stirs wonder of Christmas hope one other way. And we're going to finish with Matthew 219 through 23 quickly and say that when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Do you see in that text, and as you think about Matthew's chapters one and two, do you see the other kind of hope we have in the dark? We have hope because God's plans go unhindered. They go unhindered. From my count, five times in the first two chapters, Matthew says a phrase, something like, so fulfilling what was spoken by the prophets. No matter what attempts across all of history to stop the plan of God were, he always sees his plan to completion unhindered, even in the dark. Isaiah 9, 2, we're gonna be in Isaiah 9 next week, but just this verse in Isaiah 9, 2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. This was 700 or so years before Jesus even came to earth in the flesh. Think about what all could go wrong in 700 years. Well, that was my hope, that was my plan, but the light didn't end up making it. But Isaiah prophesies this advent of Jesus at Christmas as the coming of God's light into the darkness, 
Jesus, the light of the world, coming into the darkness, and now darkness would not and could not snuff him out. John's gospel speaks of Christmas hope in the darkness like this. John 1.4 says, in him, that's Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Has not. Will not. Martin Luther says this, thus Christ has always been the life and light, even before his birth, from the beginning, and will, never, and will ever remain so to the end. He shines in the Holy Scriptures through his saints, prophets, and ministers in his word and works, and he has never ceased to shine. But in whatever place he has shown, there was great darkness, and the darkness apprehended him not. Darkness tried to. The chief priests and the scribes, they read of the light and the darkness, and they were just not that interested. Their smug indifference, however, didn't snuff out Jesus. Herod heard of the light in the darkness and got very troubled, very worried, very terrified. He devised a plan to snuff out the light, but the light outlived Herod. That's part of what Matthew's trying to let you see. So the darkness tries to overcome Jesus, but it doesn't. How? Because in Jesus Christ, God came into our midst as light in a darkness, and no one would hinder God's plan for redemption for the people that he loves. No one could, no power could, no person could, no principality, through dreams, through visitation of angels, warnings to the wise men and through expensive gifts, funding most likely the displacement of Mary and Joseph and Jesus, God sovereignly worked in the midst of the darkness. Don't you see, despite the incomplete wisdom that we have in the dark, despite the worry of bad actors in the dark and wounds we all get in the dark world, the wonder of Christmas hope in the darkness is that God entered into it, was the light within it, and he overcame it. And we are united with him in that. When you will put your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how is that? Because though Jesus didn't die as a toddler at the hands of Herod, he did die at the hands of the Jewish leaders and of Rome. And this time, instead of God whisking his light off to Egypt, God the Son embraced the darkest day in history. So the creator of life would give his life on the cross. Why would he have to do that? So that he could absorb the wrath of God towards sin and darkness. So the presence of God in human flesh could be in our midst, but also could be our substitute. So the light of God could rise from the dead and shine forth forevermore in his victory over death and through his spirit-empowered people. You see, we have hope now, and we also have hope for a future without darkness, because one day the darkness of the world will have its own death. In the revelation of John in verse chapter 21, where he talks about the second advent of Jesus. Here's what he says, when the new city of Jerusalem comes down to the new creation, he says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb and the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light, the nations walk, the nations, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, they walk by the light 
of God. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never shut by day and there will be no night. No night? The ever presence of God's light that the darkness will not and cannot overcome. Jesus' light in the darkness, Jesus' light in his people now in the darkness. And one day when he comes again, his second advent, he will end darkness forever. But how can he do that without ending us when we've got darkness in us? Because he absorbed our darkness on the cross by faith. You can have that from him. He absorbed all of our darkness and he absorbed all that darkness itself could throw at him and he overcame it. Brothers and sisters, Christmas can be hard. Christmas can be dark at times. Our world can be dark. You can be wounded. You can have worry. But good news Jesus has overcome the dark. And as we wait for him to fully and finally restore all things when there will be no night, he's given us his presence now through the spirit that you can have by faith. Jesus entered the darkness to give us light and life. Christmas in the darkness. Find wonder there. Find hope there. Find Jesus there. As we close a call to action, if you're new here, um, I just want to make very clear that I don't believe we are saved by works. We're saved by faith, faith alone. That's what I've been trying to say. Like Jesus did the work. We trust him and we follow after him but calls to action are helpful, I think, because a lot of times you can step away and be like, okay, now what? So in the room today, if you are not a follower of Christ, and I say this every week, uh, and you may be watching online too, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, what, what now? I'd say, take an take it honest look at yourself and say, what, what's my response to Jesus now? Is it indifference? Is it troubled? Is it terrified? And ask King Jesus to light up the darkness in your life and worship him. I think for a lot of us, we, we look at King Jesus and we're just like, yeah, we're terrified. But if you look at him, what he came to do, how he engaged with people, how he loved ferociously. Why would we be terrified of that kind of a king? It's time to trust him and to repent. Repent just means to turn away. Just to say, I, I wanna live for you. I wanna stop being the little God, the little king, the little queen of my life and I want you to be king. If you're a follower of Christ in the room, I just would say, like, maybe you just need to ask Jesus to reveal his presence to you. 
in the darkness of your life right now. If you feel like you're in a pit, if you're not really sure which way is up, would you just ask Jesus, Jesus, I know you love me. I've given my life to you, but I'm, in, I'm feeling dark right now. Would you, would you light up my world? And would you find hope in his presence? And in his under, unhindered plan to work all things together for good in your life. All thing together for good doesn't mean it's like, well, that was awesome. But that you can look back even in the pain points of your life and see the way he has, back to week one, redeemed those. And you may not even see that redemption this side of eternity. You may always live your life going, I don't know how he's gonna use that. And that's where you put your trust. You read the stories in scripture, you know they had that feeling a lot. How could anything good ever come out of this? Joseph sold into slavery. How can anything ever come out of this that would be good? I don't know, just the salvation of an entire nation. It takes time though. Find hope in his presence and his unhindered plans that he will work all things together for good in your life. He accomplishes his purposes despite any darkness and all odds. And do you long for no more night. It's coming. So as we close, let's pray and worship King Jesus. Our Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word that illuminates our lives, that, that brings comfort, that brings hope, that brings clarity. Would you, even now, Holy Spirit, would you guard our hearts and minds from lies that the enemy might want to tell us about ourselves, about how you don't love us, that's why all these bad things have happened, how you, you're not in control, tries to break our minds, all these quandaries that we're not, well, how can those both be true? God, would you just help us to see Jesus who stepped into the deepest darkness, the separation from you that we deserve on the cross and he was victorious over death. And would you help us to at least know, we may not always know why things happen, but we do know that it's not because you don't love us. The cross proves that. Would you restore our hope if we don't have it? And would you lift us even higher if we do? It's for your beautiful name, Lord Jesus, I pray, amen.